It's the Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by ANZ Home Loans for financial well-beings. And welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Breakfast, available on iHeartRadio every morning and also on Spotify and Apple and wherever you get your podcast from. It's a Sunday morning, halfway through your weekend around Australia. It is the 16th day for October for 2022. Hope your weekend is going well, particularly around property. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to be reflecting back on the last seven days from the Real Estate Breakfast with the seven-day rewind, looking at some of the interviews, which includes buying a house when you're drunk. Yes, we find out that story from Luana in Wales. We also talked to Angie Zigamanis over the supply of apartments and areas where people are are losing money when selling. We also talked to Cassandra Cross about real estate fraudulent behaviour and why people are lying about their wealth and then walking through luxury high-end property to buy when they don't have the money. We also talk with Vaughan Clark this morning in Melbourne about people being much more cautious with their mortgages and some of the dangers right now borrowing at the full maximum. That is all coming up on the Sunday Rewind next. We talk with leading property commentators with analysis, predictions, forecasts and what's trending every morning from 6.30. And if you're celebrating your birthday on the 16th day for October, John Mayer, you share your birthday with him. And with all of this talk about tactical nukes from Putin, I see in the history books from 1964, the first Chinese nuclear test took place. It was a 22 kiloton uranium device that was dropped at Lop Nur, which is inside China. Then, interestingly enough, in 2009, a Japanese scientist published his results of his computer simulation, which suggests, based on deaths from the nuclear test and others, that up to 190,000 people could have died in China from nuclear-related illnesses. And of course, we would hate to think what the death toll would be inside the Ukraine if that happened in 2022. It's the main centre forecast with PRD, selling smarter every day. Okay, let's lighten up the tone and check on your weather on this Sunday morning. First, we go to Sydney and expecting the showers to increase in a high of 22 degrees. In Melbourne, one or two showers in the forecast and 17. Brisbane expecting some possible showers and a high of 25. And in Perth today, partly cloudy, but it should be mainly dry, so get Get out and enjoy it around Perth and your high of 21. It's your real estate weekend podcast in review. We stayed for a couple of drinks as we, you know, we did quite regularly. But this time was particularly wild. We ended up playing drinking games. I ended up stumbling home at half past eight. Honestly, I don't remember. But apparently I said I'm buying that house and I phoned the estate agents and I put in a bid. Yes, so subconsciously you were there, you were on, you were thinking real estate and you were still switched on enough to buy it. So that says something about the way that you think about real estate maybe. 
I just, as soon as I walked into that house, I I could just see the potential, you know? And, you know, isn't it all about taking risks? Like, nothing's ever going to be safe. Yes, I was drunk, but it turned out very well. It was the best <laughs> drunk decision I ever made, and I would do it all over again. And so after you sold the first one, did you stay with the theme? Did you have a little bit of uh, alcohol perhaps to go to the second one? I did not. Maybe I should have done. (laughs) Well, it was such a great result. So I was just thinking perhaps you want to keep to that sort of method. It worked. (laughs) I'll bear that in mind for future. And what about the royals? Are you a royalist with this change that has now happened? I definitely wouldn't call myself a royalist. Um, But, you know, it's always sad when people die, isn't it? She had a a long reign and all that. But, you know, I I wouldn't call myself a royalist. It's been a very sombre time around here lately. And do you think that Prince Charles or King Charles is going to make a great king? I do, you know, I think he's got really strong values and uh, I do, I'm feeling quite positive about it. It's not something that I'm that clued up or interested in, it's just I do think that he, he will be a great king actually. Now, I've got to ask you this question, Luana. What sort of media attention have you had? I mean, here we are in Australia giving you a call in Wales. Has your phone been running hot? <laughs> this story's gone crazy. It was a little um, throwaway comment that I made to a journalist thinking it was going to be part of an article. It ended up being its own article. It's ended up going worldwide. What can I say? I, d- I, don't, I never knew that it was going, <laughs> that people would be so interested. <laughs> Enjoy your morning coffee. It's your real estate weekend podcast in review. Around the whole decision making where people are deciding to go for what they see as a safer bet in these boutique developments, Has that been a growing trend that you've observed, say, over the last six months? Uh, Well, yeah, even over the last two or three years, um, boutique apartments in smaller projects um, typically have showed better resale price performance than than larger high-rise apartments, and and there are a number of reasons for it. Normally, they're they're higher spec and better quality, but also being in a smaller project, when you're reselling, tends to mean that you also have less competition for sales um, because there's less likely to be other apartments within the project selling on the market at the same time. And also, um, in those boutique projects, you tend to get a mix of of investor owners and owner-occupier buyers, so you've actually got a broader market to sell into as well. Do you think in general there seems to be a bit of a downturn in people looking towards these shiny high-rise developments because of some of the problems that have happened? Uh, I think definitely that, that those new high-rise developments have, have, are probably less attractive now to, to often to the new investor. Previously, it, they were, I guess, encouraged by depreciation benefits, by, in Victoria, for example, stamp duty savings. A lot of those things have sort of have dissipated a little bit um, in recent years in terms of the way they're sort of tax advantaged. As you mentioned, there's a lot of concerns about um, quality down the track. Um, you're buying off the plan and you're not necessarily going to be 100% sure of what the end result is. So so I think a lot of people are either going with you know, trusted builders where they know, you know the product's going to be good at the end or in uh, smaller projects. And the CoreLogic Pain and Gain report shows that there were fewer loss-making sales in the Brisbane council area. Brisbane seems to still be pushing through on the positive slate. 
It does, and Brisbane was affected by low overseas migration, but it's had a huge number of COVID migrants coming north from, from Sydney and Melbourne over there, and so it hasn't had the same challenges from a vacancy perspective that some of those pockets of Melbourne and Sydney have. And I guess it's always, we should point out that it's always good to have perspective because loss-making sales are rare overall. Sellers made a profit on 93.8% of resales in the June quarter across Australia. So it isn't all negative in the bigger picture. No, no. Obviously, some locations do better than others, but also it also just highlights that you know, the longer you hold the property, the more likely you have a capital gain, and a lot of those locations um, are likely to have people who've held on to the, a lot of those resales are likely to represent people who've held on to those properties for two, three, four, five years and longer. So the longer you hold on to it, the more likely you to experience a capital gain. It's the Real Estate Podcast across Australia, seven days a week. We know about the romance scammers out there, and Netflix really did educate a lot of people with the Tinder swindler, which was pretty obvious to watch this guy at the centre of the documentary, but he had the attraction of girls thinking that he was a high roller with the way that he was representing himself. And that is probably the key to it, Cassandra. Absolutely. So when Netflix released that documentary earlier this year, for me, I was, I guess, having a mainstream moment for a lot of my friends and family and those who have been aware of the research I've been doing, but not really understood it. And I think what was great about the Tinder swindler was it did demonstrate, I guess, the different techniques that Simon was using in order to present this image of power, of status, of wealth, and how he was able to groom and manipulate several women into giving him, I think it was tens or if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and the power, it's a power play because while I was watching it thinking, how can you be sucked in by this person? Because the guy, in terms of his personality, he was just so fake with the way that he was doing it. But I think you look at social media and the way that people hobnob, and this is people that actually have money, that are very flashy. They like showing off on their Instagram accounts. They might have bought a new car. This kind of just helped people dovetail into this whole lie, this conspiracy of fraud with what he was doing. It's certainly very challenging from the outside to watch a documentary like that or to have friends or family that are going through the experience. And it's difficult for an outsider to really understand the dynamics of the relationship and to, I guess, try and understand how the victim doesn't see what's actually happening. And it demonstrates the various techniques that offenders deliberately use in order to manipulate and to exploit victims. So offenders will use a variety of grooming techniques. They'll use a variety of social engineering techniques such as um, urgency and authority and this idea of status and wealth that we've spoken about. And in several cases, they'll also use a number of psychological abuse techniques in order to, I guess, deliberately and purposefully lure the victim in and get them to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do in different circumstances. Now, there was a recent article about this with Domain last week, and one of the real estate agents was talking about showing some of these scammers through property, and we'll be talking to one of them in just a moment, and didn't quite get the end game because they didn't hear from that person again, but they found out that they didn't have any money, so... Talk to that. What are they up to there? Are they taking photos? How is that all sort of working in the end game for fraud? 
Sure. So in those particular circumstances, the end game is not likely to be the property itself. So it's not surprising that the real estate agent doesn't have any further contact. What I would assume is happening in those situations is that the offender is using the the open houses, the properties to build up that image of status and wealth. So if they're in a relationship with someone, for example, and going to look at multi-million dollar properties on the premise that they're looking to buy it, they're portraying this image of, of wealth and of power. And therefore, when they then ask that person for money down the track, which is likely to happen, um, there'll be some emergency, some reason why they can't access their, their accounts and they'll ask for an amount of money from the victim. It's your Real Estate Weekend Podcast in Review. And good morning, Munro. I understand that you've got your own experience with deception and fraud in this area. What happened? Yeah, Craig, a really interesting story. Um, I had an experience last year during the COVID where I was approached by a 15 to $20 million buyer who had moved here from New Zealand, who was looking to buy a prestige property in the eastern suburbs and went out looking for specific properties. He had very specific requirements and specific architectural design that he liked. He also wanted to look at the North Shore. So uh, together with Rich, we put together a couple of opportunities in Mossman and on the Lower North Shore. And we started our journey with this particular gentleman. And eventually we found a particular property in Bellevue Hill on Warren Road, went to see the property a couple of times, said to me, what do you think it's worth? I did a bit of due diligence and homework. I said to him, look, anywhere between 16, 250 and 17, I said to him, do you have a solicitor? He said, no. Can you refer me to somebody? I said, sure. I referred him to one of the solicitors we work with. And the process with a buyer's agent is early on, we check if the client has finance. And he said to me, I don't need finance. I'm a cash buyer. I said, great. Uh, With no disrespect, I do need to have some evidence that you have the funds available. Absolutely no problem, he said to me. The solicitor I'd referred him to and sent the contract to never returned calls to them and yet still carried on playing the game. He arrived here from New Zealand with this lady. He'd met a, a very attractive Brazilian lady who I didn't meet because he'd broken up with her he told me by the time he'd come on to me and started working with me Um, and I don't understand what it is Craig if people just have so much time on their hands to waste or they have an inferiority complex or what it is that drives them to behave in this manner It's a weekend of real estate. And just looking at the risk factor, even if they can satisfy the banks with the stress test and can borrow full maximum, I mean, this is something that you've got to be dealing with, right? What sort of exposure in risk are they potentially facing if they are taking out that full maximum of a loan? The risk is at the purchase point. Our concern is that agents are still looking for unconditional offers on properties. And if a first home buyer gets caught into that and makes an unconditional offer and the loan's reassessed, they may no longer qualify for the loan, which puts them at risk of losing their deposit. So we're very much in saying to our first home buyers, you must have a finance clause. Finance clauses are now almost required for every first home buyer's contract to sale to ensure that they are assessed and can still meet the loan required to satisfy that purchase. 
Yeah, and talking about those maximum loans, the loans that were taken out at 5% deposit as part of the government first home buyers scheme, how problematic are those loans that you have first-hand knowledge about? And I guess moving forward with people looking to take out those types of loans. The program itself is a good program if people are comfortable with their positions and affordability and their jobs. If they feel uncomfortable with their employment or their ability to continue to earn the income required, then they are at a risk with property prices dropping. They could be in a situation of a negative equity position if they are forced to to resell that home. We connect you to the best real estate information across Australia. The Real Estate Podcast. 